Good morning, everyone, and it is indeed a good morning, isn't it? Um, Today our subject is Kriya Yoga. It hardly seems worth explaining why this is a subject we should talk about, but I think you'll know more after our hour and a half is done. I'm Nayaswami Asha. I began my spiritual life here at Ananda. I lived here for 16 years from 1971. Uh, Then Swamiji moved us to Palo Alto, where I've been ever since. Um, After me, I believe Freeman will speak. Freeman is presently the leader with his wife Padma of the colony in Seattle, but he also started here with Padma and they raised their family. Uh, And Gita is their child and is now doing her part (laughs) to bring Master's work into fruition. Freeman uh, worked also in the business world for many years in order to support his family here. But when that dharma was done, he was able to work first in financial services here and now leading the Seattle colony. So there's a wealth of experience. Parvati and I were nuns together back in those early years, part of the little trailer enclave over at Ayodhya. My, my, my. (laughs) And she, I believe, and with her husband Pranaba, has lived in probably at least as many colonies as anybody at Ananda village, perhaps almost all of them. She has a very distinguished record as a gypsy in that respect (laughs) and has almost single-handedly created Janaka Foundation as the uh, legacy, the system of building the legacy for Ananda for the future. So each of us, the three of us, and all of you who are involved in our own way have been putting one foot in front of the other under the guidance of God and gurus trying to find a way to return in realization and service all the blessings that have been showered upon us. Because we are now really moving with um, beautiful inspiration into an entirely new generation of individuals who who did not merely grow up here or come here for school, but have actually taken on the next phase of Ananda's development. Uh, It's a very interesting position. I I was in New York City uh, at the end of June. Yes, the end of June. And I actually lived a summer in New York City. It's because of that summer in New York City, to a very large extent, that I'm at Ananda Village because it was there I met Lakshmi, uh, Puru's wife. We were both 19, maybe 20, Eventually, she moved to Menlo Park, met Swami Kriyananda, and told me, I have met a real teacher, and I think you'll like him. (laughs) So all of these things all come together in ways that we don't understand. And I was trying to speak of when I lived in New York City, and it was 1965. That is, 66. Now, that is a really long time ago. (laughs) but only in the sense that there's a lot of days and nights and a lot of opportunities in those days and nights to make all kinds of decisions about our consciousness, who we're going to be, how we're going to live. But there is a a great illusion of time that begins to develop. Um, The phrase that I've come up with now is, for those of us who are chronologically developed... <laughs> Some of you are still chronologically challenged. <laughs> but 
But all that this tells us is it gives us a nice rhythm. It gives us a nice rhythm for life. And that which seemed a little panicky when we were still chronologically challenged looks a little different when you're a little more developed because you recognize that there's been a lot of days and nights. Master said, or Swamiji said, that the reason they say hell is eternal, the tradition is that hell is eternal, is because when you're in it, that's how it feels. Uh, But when you go in and out of it a few times, (laughs) then something, that memory lingers in you. And you recognize that there's this um, steady rhythm of life. That is what we're all living. We're just moving forward. And I believe it was the Dalai Lama when he was asked about reincarnation. He gave an answer that I've always really loved. He said, the difficulty from our side when we try to understand reincarnation is we see each incarnation as a fragmented event. He said, in fact, it's simply one continuous flow of energy, which I guess is the the delight that people have when they cross over to the other side and realize that nothing in particular has happened. I remember Swamiji saying to me, it was right after my mother died, I wasn't in any way anxious about her death. It was an appropriate timing and everything was right about it. But he just said, just so emphatically, nothing happens when you die. And then he said it again, nothing happens when you die. Nothing happens in the sense that we might wish it to happen which is that there's some actual interruption in the karmic burden we're carrying. We kind of imagine somehow, and this is the unfortunate and great tragedy of suicide, is that there's this mistaken belief, and all suicide is is a mistake, and all mistakes can be overcome. Look at Jesus. He betrayed his own master and was eventually liberated. All mistakes can be overcome. But it's the mistaken thought that somehow... I can interrupt this karmic burden by some kind of external action. And, of course, that's a very radical one. That's a complete repudiation of the opportunity given you, hoping you can cash it in for a better deal, you know. (laughs) I mean, all of us hope at times to be able to cash it in for a better deal. That's just something that crosses our minds. But what happens to us as we become spiritually developed and not merely chronologically developed, because unfortunately they're not, um, they don't automatically go together. But when we become spiritually developed, we a few really key attitudes begin to come into our awareness. And one of them is that it is simply a continuous event. And there is no point at which the threads can be cut, cut in the sense of not woven out to their final story. And until that realization comes, really one is not ready for the spiritual path because one will even approach the spiritual path as some kind of a quick fix. Uh, There have been lots of questions when you travel, as I do, and speak to many people, as I've been doing now for, as I've been privileged to do now for many, many years, Um, There's a certain pattern that develops in people's questions. It's not that every individual isn't unique. And that, of course, is the the joy of the spiritual path, is every moment has an intuitive reality of its own. But there are certain um, obvious delusions that we all try to take. And I would get asked, 
the same question from many different angles until I began to understand what it was. And no matter how it was couched, in India it would be couched with great philosophical references to the deities and the epics and with Sanskrit words I didn't know and, you know, just all kinds of things. And America would be much more direct. And in New Zealand, at first, it was incomprehensible because of the accent. (laughs) But gradually over... (laughs) Our Kiwis are protesting. (laughs) But in any case, it was always the same question. Isn't there an easier way? You've been on the path a long time. I bet you know a shortcut. (laughs) No such luck. It just isn't there. Because there's no way you can cut the threads. You just have to string it out until you've drawn it all the way back to the divine. And so what the masters are here to tell us, and, and this is a very important thing we have to understand, is they have not really come to make it easier in the egoic sense, they have actually come simply to make it possible. And therefore, they make it a lot easier. Because if it's possible, then it's easy, isn't it? There's a very good film that I saw, uh, Beyond the Edge. Dombar, do I have the name right? I recommend it. It's very interesting for willpower. It's It's a very creative story about Hillary and Tenzing, first ascent of Mount Everest. And it has actors, uh, handsome, very dynamic, uh, attractive actors, playing the parts of everybody in it. But because so much of the movie is shot in blowing snow and things like that, they don't ever actually talk. And all of the, um, all of the dialogue is the actual voices of the actual people put together from uh, interviews and so on. So you really hear their voices, and then they're acting out in front of you, and then they're telling you, what it felt like and what they had to do. And uh, Hillary, he describes a certain point uh, where they had to go up this, because nobody knew what was up there. So everything they saw, they were seeing for the first time. Now it all has names and so on. I mean, I've read so many of these books, but I, I, I don't even like cold weather. I don't know why I read so many of these books, but I like adventure. I like armchair adventure. So I, I knew all of these places, but when they were seeing it for the first time, it, it was just like they didn't know it was up there. And Hillary describes a certain point when he had to, I guess, I guess they had to go up an ice chimney, if I have it correct, and, and he braced his back against one piece of it and his feet against the other and just scooted up. I mean, this is all, you know, just a thousand feet from the top. And he said, and I love this, he said, Never before or since in my career have I done something where the danger of doing it so outweighed the reason for doing it. (laughs) I don't know why, but somehow that phrase really caught me. And, of course, the spiritual path is different than that because the danger is on the other side. The danger is in not doing it. But to the ego sometimes, it really gives us this impression that there's some great danger here. You know, that there's something, something threatened and we feel to risk all for God is somehow really dangerous and we're not sure that the reason for doing it outweighs the danger. And there's a, a, just a line in the sand and if I was going to say there is a shortcut to the spiritual path, that shortcut is a really simple one to just cultivate the fact that all the danger is on the side of not doing it. 
That's where it all lies. Because what happens if we don't do it? Well, this. <laughs> Not this, Ananda Village, but this. You know? I was in New York City, as I mentioned a week ago, I mean a month ago, and uh, I find it very stimulating to be there because uh, there's no middle ground. You know, there's a tremendous amount of spiritual energy there. <clears throat> Just your people are really serious. But my, 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 the alternative is really obvious. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it's, it's almost, uh, it's like the demons are just, you know, going, going, going like this. And you thread your way among them. But the, by the contrast, the power that you have. And to come to our subject today, Kriya Yoga, that's what Kriya Yoga is. Kriya Yoga says, your reality is your inner world. And even though for, and God alone knows, how many incarnations we've been convinced that all the rest of it was our true reality, it's all a mistake. And, you know, it's just, it's just so hard to get that. Walking around in New York, driving around, I was driven around a lot over this bridge and that bridge and upper this and lower that and south this and... Uh, <laughs> Seinfeld's Cafe, is that right? You all, I mean, I dropped out of television before a lot of these things happened, but, or that was in L.A. Is that in L.A. or New York? It's New York. But there's some famous TV spot, and for some reason we were always crisscrossing it. And every time we crisscrossed it, somebody would have to tell me, this is where the television show was shot. Yes, yes, this is where it was shot. And it, it's fine, it's harmless as things go, but just the alternative is really strong. It's the same in all of our lives, every single day, isn't it? The alternative is always there. Who are you? What do you think you are? Where do you think your happiness comes from? What happens if those conditions change? You know, and, and at Ananda Village, especially, it's true in all our colonies, but of course more so here. There's just no way to say it. It's just more so here. It's been holy for so long. I was, uh, we were talking about Mexico with Anashini, and I was remembering the Virgin of Guadalupe and how, how Swami had so many threads in his consciousness, didn't he? At the end of his life, he wrote that novel, which is all about the Virgin of Guadalupe. Who knew that that was so meaningful to him? And in fact, he went there at one point, and it was very, very meaningful to him. Just all these threads are coming together in the lives of our masters, and he writes a novel about it. And I, I asked the group afterwards, I said, have, has, have there ever been any apparitions of Mary? Have there been any visionaries in America? Is there any place in America you can go? No. Really. You go to Master Shrines in Los Angeles. We have Mount Shasta. We have places that we like. But really, we have a non-village. And we have our temples that we're now building. You know, we are in a very unusual position. You know, we're, we're, we're creating it. And we're creating it by the presence of Swami Kriyananda, who conscientiously, all I can put, say is he took his consciousness from point to point. And he planted his consciousness in each of those points. And then he began to try to teach us. Children... You know, children, your inner reality is the only reality. What are you going to do about that? And then he would encourage, but he would always just wait and watch. And we would run in frantic circles, (laughs) 
banging our heads against the bars of the cage, trying to see if maybe this actual one would work, you know, and we would explain to him why this delusion, among all the others, was in fact not a delusion. (laughs) And he would breathe out and just smile. He he became, when when you got to tune into him, you would... He became master of what I began to call the sympathetic clucking noises. Ah, he would say. <laughs> Completely uncommittal, but you sort of had the feeling that maybe he approved <laughs> if you wanted him to. But underneath it all, it was always, what are you really doing? Where, where are you every morning? Where are you every night? Where does your consciousness go when it comes to rest? Does it go out in massaging and polishing all those things that will be gone like that. The world may change or disappear, but truth can never die. Just as they sang that, it just came into me how powerful that is. And the world constantly changes, and it may disappear. It will disappear when we die. For us, this world will disappear. When my mother died, I... I, uh, My mother was a good mother, and in the end I had to take care of her a lot. But she was not a deeply spiritual person, and I, I don't feel that the tie with her, I didn't choose it for spiritual reasons. In fact, Swami said devotees have to get a body somewhere. <laughs> and if you're, if you're very spiritually inclined, you often choose a family, he said, where the karma is a little bit lighter, so that you'll be able to step away from it without it, it ripping at your heart too much. So when my mother died, I sort of, the question, it took me a little while to phrase it, but the question was, can I just bless her and let her go now? Will she know? Because when she was alive, I had to be very attentive because she knew. He said, for someone like your mother, who was a good woman, he said, she'll only vaguely remember this world. And and the details will just disappear for her. For us, it's slightly different. Because, well, let me phrase it differently. The extent to which we live in Kriya, live in our spines, live in the energy, in the chakras, now, then we will be able to experience that death is a seamless event. For one thing, there will be no great desire to be rescued from the incarnation we're in. And what do we think rescue might be? Really, we can never become unconscious. Truth can never die. Therefore, in a sense, you see, the truth of our delusions can't die either. In this sense, they won't automatically die. They must be repudiated. And in the autobiography, there's a a statement. I believe Swami uh, Shankaracharya says it. Ritual will not um, eliminate delusion because ritual is not the opposite of delusion. Isn't that an interesting statement? The opposite of delusion is not more external events. The opposite of delusion is to go inside yourself and just dissolve the very vibration that has deceived us into thinking it is our true fulfillment. And don't for a moment imagine... Let's see, how do I want to say this? Someone was asking me, whether the path gets easier or harder the longer you're on it. And it was a 
the next generation. I call them Generation Three. That's my personal name for it, because Swami was the first after Master. Some of us are the second and the third, not necessarily in, in chronological development, but in responsibility for the project, where you are in the project. Because Generation Two, we did something, and Generation Three, whoever you are, is going to do something else. This man of this age asked the question, does the path get any easier? And I think the question was, does the, does the karmic challenge get less? And there was a certain, I hope, I hope, I hope, under that question. No, I said. <laughs> and in fact, uh, there's a certain almost fear because you see what even very advanced souls have to face. And so there is again that same question, I hope, I hope, I hope. No, it doesn't get easier. But it does get infinitely easier in one very simple respect. You stop rebelling against it. This is the Festival of Light every week. We have our mission, and then we decide that I know better. That I just know better. Of course, because I know better. After all, it's me. (laughs) I know better. And then when God asserts himself, a piece of us thinks he must be wrong. Or if we don't, we're not that blatant about it, we work very hard to find the hole in the system. But the longer you live and the more you go in and out of hell and begin to understand, it's not so bad. I, I've heard Swami say that so many times. You know, it's, suffering is not so bad. Whether you're, He would say, whether you're, whether you're in pleasure or pain, whether you're suffering or whether you're content, it doesn't matter. I, I must admit, I heard that for a long time. And all I could think of was, yes, it does. (laughs) And yes, it does. Because when you're in hell, it feels eternal. And it's no fun. Suffering is no fun. But it doesn't matter because you're looking at the horizon. And there's this feeling, and it does not come from ritual. And it does not come from organizational membership. And nobody can promise you the blessings of the Guru. Nobody can say, if you do this, you will have the blessings of the Guru. You will have the blessings of the Guru when you open your heart. Whoever says with devotion the name of Babaji will call to himself in that moment an instant blessing. That's so simple that the deluded mind tries to find that he must mean something else. There must be something more to that. But to say the name means to give up every other reality except that. And in that sense, yes, the path gets not effortless, but uh, liberating. Because whatever you're going through, why would you want it different? Oh, I can think of a lot of reasons why you would want it different. But why would you really want it different? And so then you start fighting the right battles. You don't really fight anymore against circumstances. You fight against your own desire to live anywhere, but in the spine, in the Kriya breath, and in the presence of God. That's all the Masters came to teach us. That's why Swami tells us that even though Master taught many things, gave many classes, when he was with the disciples, all he would talk about was attunement. 
because all the rest of it, just as others have said this week, beautifully said this week, once you're standing in that right vibration, you see everything looks as it's supposed to look because then you're walking in the presence of God. I had a very interesting experience last night. Many of you were here for the um, meeting of the Master's Play in which various of us acted out the parts of different disciples and I had the incomparable blessing of playing the part of Gyanamata. Among other things, I had the best costume. (laughs) But one of the reasons I had the best costume, she had an iconic look that we all know from God alone, and almost all of myself was obscured. Only this much was showing. And because it was only this much, and you could kind of blur that out, I could really feel uh, that I was her. And just, I'm not trained as an actor, but just trying to play the part. I just, uh, as I was waiting to come on, I just visualize, I have two pictures of her in my mind. One is the picture when she's standing behind Master in that long, funny coat, kind of like this. I think they were putting their hand prints in or something, but she's just there like this. And the other one, of course, is her face on the book, which is what I, I was I- I- imitating. And I kept visualizing that that's what, if I looked in the mirror, which to a large extent was true in that moment, but if I looked in the mirror, that would be the image that I would see. Because, you know, we have an idea of who we are and what we look like. Where do we get that idea? We look at photographs and we look in the mirror, don't we? But I was driving over this morning and I thought, what if... Every time I visualize myself, I visualize Swami, or Master, or Babaji. What if, instead of even constantly seeing this face and saying, oh, there I am in this picture, there I am in this picture, there I am when I was chronically, chronologically less developed than I am now. (laughs) But if every time, in our own hearts, we didn't even see this body, wouldn't that be a step in the right direction? Inner energy the liberating power of Guru's grace in the end, in the beginning, and in the middle. That's really all there is. So let's not waste any more time. What do you say? God bless you. We were, we were scheduled to have uh, Bharat, Nayaswami Bharat, be with us today, but he's not feeling up to the task. So we regret that he's not here, and we'll do our best to uh, fill the large gap. It's been 22 years since Padma and I lived here at Ananda Village, and some things you kind of forget. After I got back from my sadhana this morning, I looked at my big glass of water by my bed, and realized that all night and before I, after I got up in the dark, it's a big dead fly. Um, the other night we were cleaning up after dinner. We stay with our daughter Gita and Badri and our granddaughter Tulsi. We were cleaning up the dishes and this sort of thing. And I said to Gita, you have a newspaper? And she said, Dad, nobody reads, uses newspapers anymore. I said, well, okay, try this. I've, I've got my iPad. Oh, I said, okay, whack. (laughs) The fly never knew it hit him. 
I have no idea if the iPad works, but I've never been a fan of Apple anyway. After all, I live in Seattle, right? You know, Yogananda's first book, Though Ghost Written, his basic ideas, his inspiration that set the tone for the teachings that we share and try our best to live, was called Science of Religion. Science is really our religion in this culture. I think we all very much enjoyed the talks the other day, uh, Dr. Peter and uh, uh, so on. Uh, so, you know, suddenly I'm drawing a blank on uh, Reuben Stone. Thank you. I see her there, but she doesn't have her name tag on. Anyway, <laughs> even if she didn't, I couldn't read it. But it's very inspiring. It's, but it's interesting. What I want to point out to us, and I very much include myself because I find all of this very inspiring, but we have a materialistic bias. For, for example, when you do the chin lock, Jalandarabandha, you essentially compress the uh, carotid sinuses and arteries in such a way as to allow you to hold the breath longer. Or if you look up and hold your eyes up, as we're taught to do in meditation, uh, our medical scientists tell us that that's the oculovagal uh, response that helps slow our heartbeat. Well, that's wonderful, but I don't need them to tell me that. I can experience that. And yet Yogananda's own autobiography is sprinkled with footnotes whereby he sought to establish the connection between science and yoga. And so this is important. Meditation is spreading around the world, yoga also, but especially meditation, on the basis of the exponential increase in scientific studies of meditation on the body and the mind. And we also have, of course, yoga therapy, which is introducing the powerful possibilities and potential for hatha yoga, raja yoga meditation, for health and healing. And yet, we get so excited for the fact that, like Dr. Peter was saying about uh, the yogic diet, the daily diet that Yogananda gave in his original lessons, how you know, after one fad after another and one bad advice after another, they're saying, hey, you know, some of this stuff really works. Okay, that's kind of where we're at, all right? And yet, as we see and as we know, science has taken us so far beyond the realm of matter into energy and to the very hem, you might say, of consciousness, that we all realize, we all see and appreciate that the twain shall meet, science and religion. Kriya Yoga, which is our topic today, and my specific aspect of that topic is Kriya Yoga as a technique, not so much as a lifestyle, not so much uh, as Parvati will speak about the devotion to the guru, attunement to the guru, all of which other speakers and our very lifestyle uh, hold for us as the foundation. But I want to focus more, more directly on the technique itself. After all, this is our day of Kriya initiation. Many people will be taking Kriya for the first time and many more um, renewing our Kriya vows. And so this science has taken us to the edge of the yoga science. And it took me quite a few years to appreciate why it is in the first step, first chapter of the Raja Yoga book, The Art and Science of Raja Yoga, 
Swami Kriyananda goes into this lengthy exposition on the um, cycle of the ages, the, the, where we are historically, and Sri Yukteswar's revolutionary um, viewpoint on the history of humanity and this planet. Most students just want to do yoga and learn to meditate, and I could feel their frustration. I generally skip the whole subject. But the reality is, is that it's very central to our understanding and appreciation of the science of yoga. Because our material sciences are still a very long way from, and possibly will never be, and shouldn't be, uh, in the realm of consciousness. He said the science of religion. Well, the premise for that was the simple statement that all, all of us are born and we seek to avoid pain and we seek to be happy. Pretty fair enough, simple. And using Swami Shankaracharya's famous term in describing God as being not so anthropomorphic, if I can say that right, but satchidanandam, ever existing, ever new, ever existent bliss. And so the theme of his teaching is that we can find what we're seeking within ourselves. Now, science gives us a vision of the universe that makes us seem so insignificant, so puny, so irrelevant, that of course it's meaningless. Of course it doesn't matter. Of course it's all relevant. What other conclusion could you reach? Well, there is another conclusion. Because it's in the stillness of our heart. It's in the stillness of ourselves that the transcendent aspect of our consciousness, which has manifested all these things, yields to us our kingship. You know, we're all sort of paupers in a real bad dream some days. Some days it's a good dream, but we're all basically paupers seeking to become princes and kings and royalty. It's no coincidence, although it's a superficial explanation, that the word Raja means royal. We're all on the path to rediscovering that. And so this Kriya Yoga, it's, it's a curious thing because as, as the world evolves and Kriya spreads and many of us travel to India and much more is being published and coming out, we have a much grander perspective on what Kriya is than at least I did when I first read the autobiography of a yogi, chapter 26, Kriya Yoga. He says there that it simply means, it's, it's a very uh, generic term, meaning to act, to react, to do. He describes it as, a, as Kriya, as, as a, an action that brings to us that transcendence, that liberation. But you see many things described as Kriya. It means to act. In the body and history of India itself, there are many, many different paths, and we've inherited a, a point of view that we're attempting to transcend by a higher wisdom that the different paths are all in conflict, the path of devotion, the path of study and introspection, and the, and the path of service and action. And so we see in the, in the history of India a whole body of practices and traditions in which specific techniques were used not just the spiritual path. And so there's Talabya Kriya, there's Navi Kriya, there's 
all sorts of kriya. There are some traditions in which the constricted uh, sound of the throat, the ujjaya pranayam, is considered the kriya. And so I've puzzled over why so generic? It's like the the response, I think it was, uh, Swami was with Anandamui Ma once and uh, some conversation about what he did and his technique and, and he tried to explain that it was Kriya and he, he said it was my Kriya and, uh, and she said jokingly, no, my Kriya, like, uh, like little Tulsi, little children will do because there are many forms of it. And so what I want to, to say before I go on is that the technique of Kriya, there are many forms of Kriya, but the power of Kriya lies in that attunement. Imagine that the technique, as a technique, is like somebody saying, here's my cell phone number. You know, here's my name, my handle. And so the technique, as we practice it, as we're taught, irrespective of anything else that might be taught, perhaps by somebody else, or that we might dream up in our fevered imagination, as we practice that, we are dialing in to the real power. It's the chintamani, the, the jewel, the precious mystical jewel that is wish-fulfilling. And as we receive it, and we take it into ourselves, and we practice with that focus, that concentration, that devotion, the correctness of our practice, the consistency of the practice to which we pledge ourselves in the Kriya initiation, then it becomes a a cell signal to the divine through the guru. Now, in many ways, although I think a lot of us regret, those of us disciples of Yogananda, we'd love to have him here. He's not, at least not in the physical form. And yet, in some ways, we're, it's easier for us to see Yogananda and the line of gurus as doorways to the transcendent state, to God. When he's here physically, it's sort of confusing. It's like that little story uh, Kriyananda told. One time he was in a room with a few people and Yogananda was talking and he wasn't totally involved with the conversation. So he, over in a corner, I think, with his eyes closed perhaps, trying to feel that, that divine presence in the guru, in Yogananda. And then he, uh, and Yogananda suddenly walks over to him, hands him an apple, as if to say, I'm also here, present. I'm both, and that's, that's a hard one to accept. But at least for us, if we have to console ourselves for the fact that our guru isn't in the body teaching us and so forth, that he is indeed a doorway to our own higher self. But this technique then, that's coming back to that, we must always remember, he also said that Kriya Yoga practiced as I give it to you, but practiced with devotion is as sure as any science, as sure as any prescription. I think of the, the nine vitamins I take every day. Talk about superstition um, in science, right? I don't know what any of those stupid things do. Yet I'm totally committed to the nine vitamins I take. I don't think anybody, maybe a few people really can say, well, yeah, this really helped me this or that. But I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> We're as superstitious as the next group. Let's face it. Okay. And so we take this sort of crude belief in science, and it is crude. I mean, as Dr. Peter mentioned about the different diets that have come and gone, it's like 
okay, what are they going to tell us next? And yet the yogis have been consistent for thousands of years. We just don't believe it until a scientist tells us. In any case, I've gotten to the point where my appreciation for those things, although I do find it fascinating, my appreciation is mainly for the fact that I know it will help people. I think back to when the Ananda centers on the West Coast all had rented storefronts, okay? And I'm thinking of Seattle here, and, and nobody ever walked to that door. They'd see an ad and uh, learn to meditate, and maybe they'd come for a class or see something about Kriya, and they'd come for that or what have you. But the place itself, you know, it was just so unremarkable that rarely we'd sit at the desk and, you know, <laughs> nobody ever walked through the door. Across the street is our east-west bookshop and, you know, people coming through there all the time and so on. But no, not, not us. When we, like the other centers, uh, what was it, Portland and um, Sacramento, ended up buying chapels that had been funeral homes. We won't talk about what that means. Uh, <laughs> When Palo Alto got the, the lovely mission-style uh, former Catholic church on um, the El Camino Real, very prominent, very well-known. And when we in Seattle were blessed to build the beautiful Temple of Light, the eight-sided blue-tiled temple modeled on the temple in Seattle, now it's very different. People come walking through the door, and they've already invested. They, they've, it's not even a question. The whole thing speaks of beauty, of harmony, of all the things that they're seeking. I think back here, uh, when I came, it was after the fire, and there weren't nothing here. I mean, there was so little of anything. Uh, as I used to, as I sometimes joke, there weren't any homes. They were all burned down, and there were fewer jobs. And so in time, 40 of us lived in Nevada City, bought a little church, and, you know, started some businesses, and eventually, one by one, we could move on back to the land here and with our homes. Swami would get up here and talk about what a beautiful place this was, and I'd look around, and we just had dirt roads, and really nothing was here. I knew what he meant, but I also knew um, that on the outside surface, it wasn't much. And so there were some who could be attracted without the outer form being credible and appreciated and so forth. And it's, it's as if science and culture is catching up to yoga in its vast spread. And I think many of us feel that, that Ananda in general, and Kriya Yoga specifically, my Lord, just go out on the internet and you'll see for yourself, is truly spreading exponentially. But it's important that we understand what it is, because there's lots of techniques out there. And a lot of the things we've inherited from India come encrusted with a long, dark period of, um, well, less than clarity, less than light. And there are, there are those who might say that Yogananda changed the technique or diluted it for the dumb Americans and Westerners and so forth. But that's not true. He gave to us the elemental, essential purity of how spirit came into manifestation. The reason the word is generic, or the reason I've come up with that is generic, is because we're all made basically the same. And the doorway out is the pathway by which spirit has entered this body. I mentioned to you about how the chin lock can help you hold your breath longer, while it also helps relax 
And so one of the techniques that Lahiri started or reactivated and, and that you see and has been taught for many thousands of years that we teach in Kriya Yoga preparation, but I do it throughout the week, is the Navi Kriya technique in the chin lock with normal breathing. If you don't know the technique, it's in the book Awaken to Superconsciousness, and any of the Ananda teachers can teach it to you. It's very simple. It's very helpful to, uh, to do that uh, before you're uh, in the beginning of your meditation. Similarly, I find that the pranayama with Nadi Shodhanam with the chin lock in the Surya Beda, the heating version, which again any teacher can tell you, it's in the Raja Yoga book, uh, also helps energize the spine. Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about retracing our roots. You know, we come into these bodies, and uh, as any Darwinist will tell you, the bodies perforce require us to engage with the senses and with the world around us too. Oh, okay, survive, maybe procreate, whatever. Sure, we understand that. That's not news. But it's as if looking in, you ever see a mirror and a mirror and you look in it and it sort of replicates itself? Well, the natural turbulence of the mind, natural because imposed upon us by the body and the world in which we live, the natural turbulence of the mind when it's stilled allows us to look into the mirror of the soul. And what we see there is no thing, but we feel there a presence that's fulfilling. The great contribution, Yogananda tells us in the autobiography, the great contribution to the treasury of human knowledge is the secret of breath mastery, which is the link between the mind, which includes, or by extension, is the soul, and the physical body is the breath. We yogis who practice various pranayams, and kriya is pranayam, though only superficially in the, in the traditional sense of huffing and puffing, but nonetheless, the linkage between our breath and our mind is a great contribution because it doesn't require a belief system. It doesn't require affiliation in any way. It can clear the mind and the breath. Using the breath can clear the mind. You know, we, Swami once, um, in a conversation with Yogananda uh, about karma and fulfilling our desires, and he came up with the thing, well, you mean every desire has to be fulfilled, even a desire for an ice cream cone? And Master said, oh, yes. But what he didn't say, at least not in that point, is that to achieve enlightenment, we don't have to fulfill every desire. He called Kriya shortcut to moksha because when we internalize by control of the breath, which is an extension of the prana, and when we just as in the Hong Sa technique, when we do Hong Sa on the spine, we go from watching the breath here in the little spine into trying to feel the pranic currents in the subtle spine in tandem, in synchronization with the breath. So too, in Kriya, we start with the physical breath, but we go immediately into that subtler, more sensitive um, awareness of the breath. Some people ask, in fact, somebody asked the other day about the sort of secrecy element of the higher teachings, and 
including this path and the path of Kriya. And there's different elements, uh, but I don't want to go off on a tangent. But the element that I see most dynamically, because Padma and I do the Kriya training in Seattle, is that it takes a while. And in fact, we truncate the training to under a year, seven or so months, but it's barely enough. But we're always in a hurry in this culture. We want everything right now. It's barely enough to refine our practice of meditation, to have even moments where the thoughts are still, when we can feel the subtle energies in the body. You know, Yogananda identified for us, and it's really a revolution in some ways. It's a revelation, certainly. The revelation that in the eight different aspects of the God's presence within us, name them according to the chakras, peace, wisdom, prana or energy, love, calmness, the inner sounds, the inner light, and bliss or joy. That in these we can commune, we can know the presence of God within us. Well, Kriya is specifically, and the path of Kriya generally, brings us in tune with God in the presence of prana, of energy. And we're a nation, we're a culture, we're in an age of energy. We're energetic, multitasking, probably shouldn't be, energetic people. And, to, and energy is one of our biggest issues, whether in health or on the planet. What a great, what, what an, and it's, and it's one of the, other than peace itself, which comes to us when we finally close our eyes and be still, energy is certainly the second most easiest aspect of God's presence by which we can commune. He said, sitting in the silence, commune on the altar of the spine. He said we can even practice a little bit of hong sa on the spine. Judicious cheating, he called it, in the period of silence. And so Kriya, it takes time to attenuate ourselves to being still, to give the mind a taste for that it's okay to be still. Like little Tulsi who loves to play hide-and-seek, we're not going to disappear if we become still. It's okay. And so it takes time, and through the different techniques of energization, Hong Saw, the Om technique, and, and preliminary techniques or helpful subsidiary techniques like Navi, Kriya, and, and Chakra exercises and so on, we refine our capacity to feel those subtle currents. It takes time, and the time of training we give is really not enough time. But of course, unless, you're, unless you've got that heart connection and you have that desire, that can propel you through the stages of training. But that's what it takes. Sure, you can get Kriya in a book, I'm told, on Amazon.com or get it on a weekend retreat with this teacher or that teacher. Those people come to us. It's like the parable of the seed that fell on the rocks, tried to sprout but died in the hot sun of indifference, unawareness. And so this technique, which we are very blessed to have, opens us up. You know... Coming from Seattle, you, you, you almost can't help but think about computer stuff, right? And so I think of the astral body as the software. 
And it's the matrix, the software of our, our unfoldment, our past actions, exists in this subtle body. And the details of that software, the specific coding lines, exist in the shashumna, in the subtle spine, in the form of those vrittis that we're told. And so when we practice kriya, when we internalize from the breath into the pranic currents, and rotate those currents through the six lower chakras, which become 12 by polarity, the inner zodiac of our specific and unique path to freedom. We have the equivalent with each breath, a year of perfect natural living, which otherwise the ancient scriptures tell us, the ancient yogi scientists tell us, reveal to us, would take a million years, earth years anyway, in order for us to become free. And that's with perfect natural living, which leaves out the other six or seven billion people on a pretty long journey. And so this, this accelerates our path and accelerates our journey. The reason enlightenment, well, not the reason, enlightenment comes first and then we can work out our, a lot of our stuff. We only need to work out the zodiac that we have now. You know, uh, we're born, take our first breath, the natal chart is cast, and it's as as if the heavens uh, welcome us or not. In any case, we're in tune with it. But really, I think much more deeply, our zodiac is so complex, we could probably be born just about any time, anywhere, because it all unfolds within us. And what unfolds in this lifetime, Patanjali tells us, is, is that which is ripe for us to unfold. In the end, none of it really matters because when we become centered, when the body's relaxed and sort of out of view of our consciousness, we reach pratyahara and the senses, sense telephones have shut down. And in dharana here, we have the inner perception of prana or joy in any of these aspects or we're meditating on the vibration, image, form, feeling of our guru. And we become so focused like that. That's our reality. That is who we are. And the rest is simply details. That's how it is that great disciples, advanced disciples, and we saw it uh, around some of Master's most advanced disciples, we can still have stuff. We can still have idiosyncrasies, even attachments. None of those matter as we develop that taste for perfect stillness. And if after our techniques we sit in the silence and have even a little bit of this practice will free us, even a little taste, I tell beginning meditators, pledge to yourself every meditation, even, well, I hate to say nanosecond, but it's a computer thing, just have a moment in the presence of perfect stillness and it's like being at the feet of infinity. Maybe nothing will happen right there or right then, but you'll come back. It's like that perfect golf shot. You'll come back, even though you're not very good otherwise. And so, even a little practice of this can free us. Because the karmic stuff we have, for which we pay way too much attention to, isn't that important. We develop a taste. It's like outgrowing that sickly sweet candy you liked as a child. And we develop a more refined taste for calmness, for compassion. And so as we develop that, the other stuff sort of sloughs away. You, you become less and less interested in things. 
this is how it accelerates our path. And when we achieve, finally, a taste of cosmic consciousness, then after repeated forays into that, and you can be sure it's not a straight line. We're not going to get into that today. I want to finish up. Nonetheless, when we finally achieve the permanent beatitude of that, then we can take our time to work out a lot of other stuff that's hidden down there. Sufficient unto the day is the stillness therein. And what I'd like to close with is a reminder to all of us gathered here how privileged we are. When you open that iPad and you look at the headlines and you see the violence and the suffering and so forth in the world today, when you see the ignorance, the hatred, and so forth, what a privilege we have to come to a place like this, for some of us to live in places like this, to have association with others of high-mindedness, to have attunement and the gift of the vibration and the teachings of such a high lineage of true masters. This is a privilege, and with privilege comes responsibility. First to ourselves, of course, we can't free anybody unless we're free, but the responsibility and the opportunity to be free and to serve. Kriya is the airplane route, the rocket ship to spirit. Hold it in your heart's precious. There's no one who shouldn't really be seeking the Kriya key to freedom. Lahiri Mahashai made it clear that no matter what religion you might espouse or outer path might be appropriate to you, if you are sincere and recognize the chintamani of Kriya as the key to your freedom through the blessings of the presence of the gurus, then this is for you. We're very privileged and very blessed in that. Thank you. I'll put my uh, little water glass on it just in case they blow away. So why don't we all stand up and stretch for a moment? It's a long morning. How feels everyone? Awake and ready. How is everyone? Awake and ready. Yay. Okay. Down now? (laughs) So when I came to Ananda, um, I took Kriya Yoga after a month. Um, I had been meditating for a year. I had uh, found a class series, a teacher who uh, uh, was a student of Swami Kriyananda's, Kersi Bulsara. He took over all of Swami's classes in the Bay Area, and I was lucky enough to find him uh, the year before. And uh, he knew about Ananda. It was just developing. This was 1971. And he told us about Ananda. It was a six-week class series, yoga postures and meditation, and uh, just wonderful. I wasn't interested in the postures. I could do them all, but meditation, I thought, that I really need. But um, he told us about Ananda, but he made it sound very difficult to come here. It was just an interesting thing, and I was thinking, you know, whenever we come to the point in our spiritual lives where we 
are really ready to get serious. I remember Swami Kriyananda saying this. He said, be forewarned. Delusion won't let go of you easily. You know, we've we've been living lives over millions of lifetimes where we've really uh, engaged in maya and we've built up a lot of karma as Riman was saying yeah yeah that's you know all there but when we really begin that journey back towards spirit uh, it becomes interesting in certain places and uh for me, right away, it was, oh, well, I guess, you know, I don't know if I'm worthy enough to go to Ananda, but I was ornery enough to say, hey, this sounds like the right thing to do, and I'm coming anyway. Because he was saying, rightly so, you know, you should have money, you should have a business, you should be really together. And I thought, well, little money, no business, sort of together. Let's go. <laughs> so anyway, I remember coming up here, and I had just read the autobiography, much as Swami did within three days. It was just thrilling. And it was the first time I got clarity about the spiritual life. But uh, coming up here, um, there was nothing here. None of this was here. And farmhouse was there. And meditation retreat was there. But Swami was here. And he was giving the truth. He was giving the teachings of the path of Kriya Yoga. And uh, as he did that, and I watched other people around him, Seva, Jyotish, Devi, others that were here, and uh, I felt, I thought, well, feels like the autobiography to me. You know, the consciousness of Yogananda it was just right on. and uh, And I thought, well, if these other people are here and they're doing it, I can do it. You know, because they looked like me. Swami, I knew, was, you know, in another category. But I saw people who were like me, and they were engaging in this practice. So it gave me hope. Um, I came a couple of times the first year and then came back the next year and moved here in July of 1972. And uh, in August, during Spiritual Renewal Week, took Kriya. Swami gave Kriya quarterly at that point, from what I remember, and everybody who was serious went to every initiation because we were still learning about it all. We didn't have a Kriya prep course. That was the Kriya prep course. And daily life was Kriya as well. It was all grounded in Kriya yoga. And although there were no buildings here, that spirit of the autobiography, of Yogananda, of Swami, just constantly in Sunday services, in classes, in teas at his home. He was constantly infusing anyone who was open to be on this path and to assume and uh, take on that vibration of Kriya Yoga. That is the heart of what Ananda is all about. If you ever wonder why, you know, you come here and it feels good, you know, some of you are new, some of you have been coming for years, but what is the real magnetism here? It's Kriya Yoga. And it's no joke to commit yourself to a path that is really the goal, liberation. This is a liberating path. Kriya Yoga is a liberating technique. And Ananda 
in in all of its forms at the village here, all of the communities in Europe, in India. It's about liberation. You know, Yogananda said, no one crossed my path that there wasn't a reason for it. And no one comes to Ananda that isn't seeking liberation. I don't care if you just walked in the door and it's all new to you. That's fine. You'll, you'll get it. It'll come quickly. But it's not the beginning of the path. This is really the end of the path. And the path goes on and on, as Yogananda said. Once you achieve it, it's endless. It goes on and on. And masters come back again and again to serve us in ways that we need, that people need. But the path of Kriya Yoga, I've always deeply loved Kriya Yoga because it's so essential. It goes right to the heart of the matter. And that is all of those lifetimes, millions of lifetimes, that we've created all those vortexes of energy that are all up and down the spine, the three feet that, that Ananta mentioned is the spiritual path. All of those vortexes of energy are reigned there. And that Kriya Yoga goes in and with a simple breathing technique goes right to the, to the spine and starts to work on those vortexes of energy, of loosening them up, of loosening the karma. And specifically in the heart, which I want to mention today, it goes in, and the first effect that you can notice from Kriya Yoga, without really knowing a lot, if you just get in and refine your practice of the technique regularly, you'll find that it starts to calm your heart. There's two layers to Kriya and the the practice, and there's many layers, but just to simplify it, our likes and dislikes are the initial emotional part of the heart. Oh, I like the weather today. Oh, I don't like the weather. Why are we having a drought? Droughts are great. You know, just all these things that, that are constantly... Um, I like it, I don't like it. Latika told me that her father one time, unbeknownst, he wasn't on the spiritual path, but he said to the, to the three daughters that he, had, that he had, said, you know, you don't have to have an opinion about everything. <laughs> and that's kind of what the likes and dislikes are about. You know, they're, they're reactive. They're the way that we react to the world. And with Kriya Yoga, we are trying our best to go into the spine and to become actors, not reactors. We want to be able to be centered in the spine and to act out from that center. Why? For our own happiness. We can never, ever, ever find happiness that is real in this world until we go inside and become, be, uh, begin to deal with the energies there. And especially, I'm doing this, especially in the heart. There are all the chakras, but the heart center in particular is very, very important to our spiritual development. Without addressing, in the beginning, those likes and dislikes, the heart's said to be the dividing line. The energy, and it's very powerful, because it's emotions, 
It's a lot of energy there, but the energy can go either strongly up, if we direct it that way, or very strongly down, back into old habit, old karma, and the lower centers, pulling us down again into materialism. You know, <laughs> I've always really appreciated the, um, the way that Swami wrote the path. And when the path, for the new path now, but when the path first came out, we were, we were printing it, we were working on it, editing it, and reading it as we went. And, you know, he was writing it. And, uh, and one of the chapters, the way, and everything is very particular about the path, the way the chapters are arranged, the way everything flows in it. And uh, uh, at the end of the chapter on Kriya Yoga, Swami says, or he has Master, quoting Master, saying, the time for knowing God has come. And it is. That's Kriya Yoga. That's what it's about, for knowing God. Then you turn the page, and the next chapter is, the quote from the Bhagavad Gita is, as often as the heart breaks, wild and wavering, from control, so oft, let him recurb it, let him rein it back to the soul's governance. And then he proceeds in that chapter to talk about real life and Kriya Yoga and the monks and all the different things that happened and all the, the ways that Yogananda worked with people. He focuses on the monks because that was his experience and that was a very core group to focus on. But just all the things that they went through and taken you know, into consideration, they were living with an avatar, they had Kriya Yoga, and they had each other for support. They were living at Mount Washington. Even so, it was very tricky because as often as the heart breaks, wild and wavering, you know, it's a powerful force, that heart. And you have to recurb it back again and again to the soul's governance. And it says, as often, meaning often. <laughs> so... But Kriya Yoga is able to ground that heart. It's able to, and it's why we say, and why when you take the, the vow, it says, you know, I will practice regularly and faithfully this technique. That means twice a day, every day for the rest of your life. And you better do it. Why? Not because you did the vow even, but because it's how it works. It's about our own happiness. And if we don't do that, this is such, as Freeman said, such an incredible opportunity in this lifetime to do this. As much as we back away from that, and we all have, we all have, various lifetimes, we've all done it all, you know, so don't feel bad about it. But more that we really have to deal with that heart's energy. And what I've experienced, what I would say, is that Kriya Yoga in, in regard to the heart, so yes, it calms the reactive process, it calms the, actually, the likes and dislikes. Then, because it works on the spine of energy within the body, so the astral spine we're talking about, it starts to work on the deep 
reactive energy and the, the vortices in the spine, all of that. But what I would say, so it's a, it will do that. Practice it daily and regularly. Really perfect it. Swami mentioned one time, he said, there was a man, I think this was at Mount Washington, who had taken Kriya and he would see him afterwards and he was going, now, how is that? You know, he was trying to get it deeper, to attune to it deeper. As long as we commit to that, not just automatic practice, but deepening attunement to that practice. And it's why we all went to all of the initiations that Swami Kriyananda ever gave because it was a process of attunement. And that you cannot get in a book, not at all. But what I've found is that Kriya Yoga strengthens the heart. It really, by calming it, by withdrawing the energy in, and this is when you awaken a chakra, it's not like this, it's inner and in the spine and up. And as you do that, and it's a process, it will take time, it's gradual. The process of Kriya Yoga, Swami once described it, he said, all these threads, it's a whole way of life. And all the threads of your life, they're all being brought together over lifetimes of practice until they all convene and you're able to go into and through the spiritual eye into liberation. That process takes time. It takes our effort over many lifetimes, again, many lifetimes, and it takes our opening to the Guru's grace. You know, when we talk about meditation, just generally, and all the wonderful scientific discoveries and all of that, and how the practices, you know, listening to all the classes, which were fabulous this week, but, um, but the one thing that science cannot address... <clears throat> and cannot take into consideration is the fact that as we do this practice we're opening the practice Kriya Yoga in particular is so that we open to God's grace the grace is what will do it and the grace is what comes in and it strengthens the heart you know in a in a a, a path of liberation, that's no joke. I mean, we're talking about getting rid of the ego, dissolving the ego, offering the ego, and it will take all of the courage that every one of us has to do that. And how do we do that? You know, Asha was addressing someone asking, you know, does it get easier or harder? I think it gets more wonderful because you know you're really on the right track. Nothing is lost anymore. <laughs> you know, you're, you're really going in a way, and I'd say as you get older, if you stick to the practice, you know it more. And it's more and more that you feel that grace of the Guru coming in and really transforming your life. And does it happen like a big drama, a big show, you know, oh, this movie? Not really. Jesus, Jesus put it quite well. He said, God comes like a thief in the night. And you know, you, you move along, 
you commit yourself, you do your practices, you have fun along the way too. It's very important. But sometimes you wake up and you think, I'm a different person than I was before. And that's, that's what's happening. It's that little plant, you plant it, and if you keep digging it up, it won't grow. But if you keep practicing and you keep offering with devotion your energy in Kriya Yoga, devotion is essential. Devotion in Kriya, I think it was Lahiri or Master, said it works like mathematics. It cannot fail. <laughs> I mean, can anything else say that? And give you complete freedom, inner freedom, liberation. I mean, what a fabulous path we're on. And it's true. Someone said to me when we were uh, standing in the very long line a few years ago to watch Finding Happiness, it was someone's mother, and she said, she wasn't referring to this kind of truth and freedom, but she said, people want to know the truth, you know, they're lied to a lot. And I said, yep, they sure do. (laughs) But it's this that is the truth, because it's the truth of our own being. And you can't get more truth than that. That truth, Swami said, is love. And it's bliss. And that's what Kriya gives you. Again, it's subtle, but don't, don't let go of it and don't think nothing's happening. Sometimes I've had meditations where I think, well, glad that one's over, you know, it seems like, but, but I feel different at the end. And this is practicing Kriya. Something is happening, and it's happening on many different levels inside of us. But that strength of the heart and Kriya and devotion, it's very vital because, you know, we're living in pretty tumultuous times. I'd say we're living right now in the crash of breaking worlds. You know, I mean, just look at the news, you know, hey, Boom, 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 all these horrible, horrible things. How do we deal with that as spiritual beings? It is vital, even more than ever, that we practice Kriya Yoga because that will give us the strength of heart, the knowing of truth of who we are. Many years ago, someone asked me at a beginning meditation class, they said, well, what have you gained from meditation? And, you know, you want to answer in a way that relates to who they are, so I didn't want to do anything complicated, but I just said, well, I feel like I know more who I am and why I'm here. Enough, you know. But, but that, that knowing, just that alone, beyond the fact of really calming the heart, really making you courageous, that is a huge statement to people in the world today. I think we're here to not only offer Kriya Yoga to all those people that want it and to prepare them for it and to give them all the support we can for it, but I think we're also here to offer hope because I think people that I talk to, they just don't know where to turn these days. There's so much darkness. And, you know, it's a great... It's a great leela. It's a great play. As the darkness increases, so does the light. And, it, and it's true. We have something to offer people just by our very being. I've been in two situations now where one was in San Francisco and another one 
can't remember quite where right now, but, but just where people, they didn't know who I was, but they just said, oh, you're so calm. You know, something was happening. I said, yeah, yeah, you know, this, wow, you didn't get excited about it. People notice who you are, your being, and take up this path of Kriya Yoga on all levels, your way of life, take the, te- the initiation, prepare for it, really practice it, and become emissaries for Babaji, who sent Master here, and who trained Swami, Kriyananda, to start all of these incredible, really Kriya Yoga communities, Kriya Yoga temples, that really will allow all of us, but it will flow out in blessing to many, many people. So here at the village, wherever you're from, whichever country, whichever state, uh, whatever, wherever your life takes you, be that emissary for Kriya Yoga and the power that it will give you to live your life in truth and in bliss and in deep love. And, and also you'll see people more for who they really are. Who are they? Souls. They're all just like you and me. Souls, no matter what they look like on the outside, you'll begin to see through that transforming power of Kriya Yoga practice, you'll see them more as Master would see them, as Swami saw them. And you'll be able to relate to them in a way that will be helpful, hopeful, and supportive to them as well. But all through that practice of Kriya Yoga, it's vital and it really grounds everything that we're doing with Ananda. Please stand and we'll uh, send out, let's in particular today, since we're gathered here and talking about Kriya Yoga, let's send out the blessings of Babaji and Paramhansa Yogananda out into the world and feel that light flowing out to all receptive people everywhere. We don't know who they all are, but they're out there and they want this light, they want these blessings. So let's do that. Let's rub our hands together. And we'll chant Om three times. Oh.